Hello, and welcome to the latest DSC Beechcroft's Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, and I'm Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this series, Helen Mason, who is Head of Vehicle Hire and Damage, is joined by a number of colleagues to discuss the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire annual workshop. Welcome to our DAC Beechcroft Credit Hire podcast mini-series. I'm Helen Mason, Head of Credit Hire, and today I'm joined by Jade Batstone, who's a partner in our Newport team. We've got four editions coming out over the next few weeks, covering all the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire annual workshop. Prior to the workshop, we asked what was keeping our clients up at night, and they said electric vehicles, the introduction of fixed recoverable costs, Celtic claims, pre-action disclosure applications, and finally, their approach to green parts and repairs. So in this very first edition, Jade and I are going to be talking about electric vehicles and specifically EV intervention strategy, and also the implementation of the fixed recoverable costs in the credit hire arena. Let's dive straight in then and get talking about EV intervention strategy. Electric vehicle sales continue to rise. 10.5 million vehicles were sold globally last year, and the number of electric cars and vans on UK roads has now surpassed well over a million. The rise of electric vehicles inevitably means that accidents involving them will also increase. Some studies have even suggested that electric vehicles are involved in 50% more accidents than their petrol or diesel counterparts. Given these stats, what steps should be undertaken? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely essential that motor claims processes do include a a really robust EV strategy, of which intervention is going to be key in controlling um, that all-important credit hire spend. We know that intervention is a really successful defence strategy when it's deployed correctly. In litigation, we normally see about a 60 to 70% success rate, and there's no reason at all why this success rate shouldn't equally apply to electric vehicles. Now, if we look at EV intervention strategy, um, those processes I talked about should firstly determine whether the claimant, so the third party, whether their vehicle is an electric vehicle or not. Capture calls should then include tailored questions to ascertain whether um, there is a need for an electric vehicle. And that is a key question the claimant's going to need to answer and satisfy potentially to, to a district judge. So there are a number of questions that can be asked, but I'm going to just highlight seven today. So do you have an electric vehicle for environmental reasons? Do you have a non-electric vehicle in your household? What are your main reasons for having an electric vehicle? Do you have any objections to driving a non-electric vehicle whilst your vehicle is being repaired? You can then offer to meet additional charges and costs such as um, congestion charges and um, charging of vehicles at a later date in the claim. Do you frequently travel in a city green zone? If so, you know, where, where is that? And you can then do checks to see which vehicles can be used in that zone. Where do you normally charge your vehicle? What do you normally pay per kilowatt per hour? And then finally, if you drive an electric vehicle for environmental reasons, Would you be willing to drive a non-electric vehicle if a carbon offset payment was made? Evidence, as always in litigation and uh, in lining cases up uh, pre-litigation, evidence is is crucial. So it needs to be requested from the claimant and and third party. And that should include their bank statements, any EV tariff apps or other proof of charging payments 
These can then be agreed and paid at the conclusion of the claim. What about intervention correspondence? Like, what should that look like to be successful? Intervention correspondence should um, always be sent by electronic means. So um, we would always recommend that that's sent by email to the third party and also um, to their legal representatives and any credit hire organisation involved. Now, the difference between normal intervention for a petrol vehicle um, versus an electric vehicle is that the correspondence will need to be tailored specifically to EVs and an EV strategy. Um, And then the correspondence will differ again, whether we've been able to make phone contact or or not um, in order to give full protection. Is it too early to report on the strength of electric vehicle intervention strategy? Yeah, I mean, as to the success, um, we're already tracking EV intervention performance, albeit it is really early days to be able to fully report on the success of the strategy. Um, I know at the workshop last week, we asked um, Corinne Furness from Park Lane Plowden Chambers if he'd come across any uh, within court, but um, no, he hadn't seen any either. So we are really early doors. But as soon as meaningful data is available, we're going to collate that and share it with um, the market and with our clients and we can undertake some market comparisons as well. But in the meantime, if anybody does need assistance with setting up and running their EV intervention strategy, we've got workflows, precedent letters and um, capture scripts, all of which we're happy to share. So um, yeah, please do get in touch. And um, I guess whilst um, EV strategy was a hot topic at the workshop last week, we did have a number of questions from delegates as to the right approach to take. Um, I think what was the hottest topic of the day, um, Jade, was actually the implementation of fixed recoverable costs. Um, we had numerous questions based on um, concerns about what this will actually mean for credit hire practitioners. Yes, it was certainly a very hot topic. So I guess before we get into the so what, we're going to have to spend a bit of time just outlining what the rules actually are. Yeah, so certainly a very high level overview of the rules. Um, They're often called Jackson 2 because it is an extension of what has already gone before. Um, At the moment, as you will all know, we have some fixed costs um, in some fast track injury cases, whereas under the reforms, we will now have fixed costs in all fast track. Um, And most importantly, for our purposes, this includes claims without injury, um, so all vehicle hire and damage claims. And also we'll have fixed costs in all claims up to £100,000, which is where the new intermediate track comes into play for claims from £25,000 to £100,000. There are two sets of fixed costs, one for fast track and one for intermediate track. And they're set in stages um, of the claim, depending on when the claim settles. There is also then the introduction of complexity bandings, uh, which is something we've not had before. For vehicle hire and damage claims, uh, the new rules come into effect for any claims issued after the 1st of October 2023. So that's the the crucial point is is the date of issue there rather than the date of accident. Okay, so I think I've got my head around those rules. um, But what actually does it mean for handlers in practice? Well, the good news, first of all, is that based on our data and the value of the cases that we've settled since January 2021, only 17% would have been affected by the new fixed recoverable cost rules as the rest of small claims track and the new rules don't apply to small claims track claims. 
And actually 89% of that 17% are fast track rather than the new intermediate track. So in practice, this means that when a claim is issued after the 1st of October, costs are going to be fixed as per the new rules and bandings. This will actually help uh, with assessing overall costs of a claim when looking at offers and quantum, because we'll know exactly how the costs will increase when the claim moves into the next stage. So when looking at kind of the overall cost of the claim. It seems to clearly be the intention that band one would be the applicable band for vehicle harm and damage claims, as bands two and three include injury. We are, however, expecting some arguments from opponents around complexity to try and push claims all the way into band four. The difference in the fixed costs then being a jump from about £3,800 to approximately £11,000 based on the value of the fast track claims that we've settled in the last two years. And that's obviously if they can argue the band four. We've looked at some data so far for comparison and four of the top six solicitors we deal with would actually get more under the new fixed recoverable cost rules than they do now or approximately the same. Um, however, two of the solicitors will stand to, to lose quite a substantial sum. Claimant solicitors, however, will not necessarily be looking at the sums received, but their claim sums and their current working practice when they're working out their comparisons and looking at data um, and therefore expect to receive a lot less under the new rules. So we are expecting potential increases in litigation ahead of the 1st of October to ensure that those claims avoid the new rules. So you've mentioned what we are likely to see, but are there any more specific behaviours we should be looking out for? Absolutely. So in addition to um, the increased litigation and the arguments around complexity that I've already mentioned to push up into band four, we're expecting further claims inflation uh, to push up claim values from small track into fast track and then obviously from fast track into intermediate track to maximise cost recovery. Claimants listers will also not be looking to necessarily settle claims in early stages and will just go through the motions as costs increase with the later stages. And also arguments around costs when claims are settled pre-litigation, as I've mentioned, that the fixed coverable cost rules apply to cases issued after the 1st of October. There's a few things that you can do to potentially tackle these behaviours. The first of which being making protective offers, obviously at the earliest stage possible um, and by part 36, but preferably pre-litigation. Making admissions, uh, something that we would always look to do once a claim is litigated, as we can do this within our defence. But this can also be done pre-litigation to limit the amount in dispute on the claim and therefore lower the track. Streamlined and focused arguments is something that is probably we've always said is advisable, but now more than ever to combat any complexity arguments. And any pre-litigation damages settlement on a cost-bearing claim, we would recommend to make dependent on the cost agreement as well. That way, if it's not agreed, then the third party's only recourse is to litigate and at least then the cost position is crystallised. And finally, ongoing monitoring of behaviours and developing strategies to deal with them, which is nothing that we are not used to in the world of vehicle hire and damage. Wow, okay, thanks Jade. Um, so a lot to get our heads around um, as we prepare and get ready for the 1st of October. Um, over the next few months, I guess there's going to be much more from us uh, as we prepare for, for that rollout. And I know we are intending to uh, release 
an article shortly, which um, we're hoping will be um, supportive and, and helpful as uh, everyone else also gears up and gets ready uh, for the implementation of the fixed recoverable costs uh, rules. Um, well, I think that brings us to an end of this first edition. Um, join me next week when we're going to take a closer look at Celtic claims. <laughs>